you have your copy of God's Word with you, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be continuing this morning as we walk through the story of the unbroken story of God in the Old Testament. We're looking today, starting in chapter 3, going to cover quite a bit of ground today going through Genesis chapter 11. To begin, though, I just want to ask you a question. Um, what in the world is wrong with people? Right, it seems to be a question that I'm asking quite often these days. Right, what in the world is wrong with people? I ask it when I hear of terrible crimes that people have committed or criminals that have been caught in the most ridiculous way imaginable. I ask it when I read of countries where dictators rule with an iron fist and live in lavish luxury while their country and their citizens die in squalor. Right, I ask that question when people I know personally even in the church, seem determined to live in constant controversy or conflict, right? What in the world is wrong with people? We sometimes seem, as I said, even in the church, like we struggle to show grace to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we ask then, you know, when somebody is lashing out at us, we might ask, what is wrong with people? But the reality is, is that I ask that question of myself as well, when I have those same feelings of outrage and impulse or anxiety rising up in my own heart and mind, what in the world is wrong with me? Anybody relate? So we left the unbroken story of God's purpose in creation last Sunday. We left that story in a place that God said was very good. He created a world with a purpose, where everything was made from nothing by the perfect power of his word so that we would walk with him, and we would reflect his image in perfect fellowship and relationship with our God. That was not just God's purpose in creation, it was what he produced through creation. And that is why we, who are created in the image of God, whether we believe in Jesus or not, find ourselves so often looking around at the world and wondering what in the world is wrong with people. Because as we look around us throughout the week, as we, we read or watch the news, or if we're honest, as we hear the things that run through our own minds, one thing is clear, the world in which we live is not the place of perfect harmony that we saw described in Genesis 1 and 2. What happened, though? Why is that the Bible calls our problem sin? turning away from God and his will. As we continue reading in Genesis 3 this morning, we quickly learn there that sin leads to brokenness, but God gives grace for restoration. Sin leads to brokenness, but God gives grace for restoration. Let's begin and look at Genesis chapter 3 together. Beginning in verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to be her husband, gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
Here the serpent is introduced and the authority of God is immediately challenged. God's word is perfect. We saw last week his image was reflected in the people he made and they walked in fellowship with him and with one another, but sin twists the word of God. Sin distorts the image of God and it breaks our fellowship with God and others. When we turn away from God in sin, it leads to brokenness in every area of our lives. As we look at the passage here, we see that that begins in this way, that sin twists the word of God. Just look at where the serpent begins his deception. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, if we go back to chapter two, then we would have to honestly say that, no, that is not actually what God said. And yet we see, as he says that, instead of simply correcting the record of what God said, Eve follows the serpent's lead, twisting the word of God even further. She adds to God's command, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Which maybe seems innocent enough, but if we learn anything from the creation account in Genesis, it's that God's word was sufficient to create everything out of nothing. What we learn here in chapter 3, though, is that God's people didn't believe it was sufficient to guide their lives. God drew the line at eating the fruit of the tree. But maybe we should just build a little bigger fence around that. Like, let's spread that out. Don't even touch it lest you will die. Just to be safe, right? Just to help God out. Eve's response to the serpent sounds noble, maybe even holy and righteous, but in reality, her response reveals that she doesn't trust God's word to be sufficient. And that mistrust is where the serpent seizes the opportunity. God spoke clearly the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you shall surely die. But he says to Adam and Eve here, the serpent does, you will not surely die. The serpent denies the danger of sin and then talks up the pleasure of sin. And so they ate. Sin twists the word of God. But also we see that sin distorts the image of God. Bearing God's image means we were made to reflect his character and to join in his creative purpose. But instead, sin rejects God's character and rebels against his rule. Just take a look at what's happening here again in chapter 3. Sin begins when we believe the lie that we know better than God. You won't die. You'll just be like him, the serpent says. He gets Adam and Eve to see this distorted image of God, to believe that God has not been honest with his people. And so they begin to reflect, not the true image of God, but this distorted image of a God who would lie to his people. And so Adam and Eve were created to work the garden and to keep it and to fill the earth with their offspring. But what happens when they sin? All of that gets distorted. The end of chapter one, they were naked and unashamed, but in their sin, suddenly the image of their naked bodies is a source of shame that they try to cover up on their own. And as God shares the fallout of their sinful straying from his design, he tells them about the difficulty and the pain and the struggle that comes with sin. Pain and childbearing, painful and frustrating work created to walk all our days in the goodness of God's creation. Now we know good and evil. Our very nature has been corrupted by sin. The image of God is not removed from us, but sin has distorted that image. And we see that most clearly in our relationships. Sin breaks our fellowship with God and others. Chapter 2, God's dwelling with Adam and Eve in perfect harmony, breathing life into them. Everything, that, everything is as it should be. But once sin enters the picture, 
When people turn from God and his will, all of that begins to break down. Chapter three, verse eight, Adam and Eve hear the Lord coming and they hide from him because they're naked and afraid. Why were they suddenly hiding in fear from the God who created them to dwell with them and walk with them? Because sin breaks our fellowship with God revealing our mistrust and our misunderstanding of who he is. And as a result of sin, they were no longer able to live in the Garden of Eden. They were put out of the garden, losing access to the tree of life because of the broken fellowship with God, the creator and giver of life. But sin also breaks our relationships with one another. When God finds Adam and Eve hiding among the trees in the garden and asks them if they ate of the tree he told them not to, the honest response to that question would have been, yes, But Adam blames Eve, right? That's where he starts. He blames Eve and then God himself, the woman that you gave me. It's her fault. And then Eve turns around and blames the serpent. Nobody is willing to own what they've done. The harmony of God's design where man and woman would complement one another is broken so that God says to Eve there, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule Both sides of that are describing a distortion of God's design. God is saying, instead of living in a way that puts the needs of one another before our own, sin means we're always looking for what's best for me. It means we're always insisting on getting our own way. Sin leads to brokenness, but God gives grace for restoration. Even here in Genesis 3, as God pronounces the curse of sin on the world and describes all the ways that our sin leads to brokenness, he offers the hope of restoration. In the midst of the curse of sin, God promises victory over sin, and he provides a covering for the guilt and shame of sin. Genesis 3.15 is referred to as the first gospel. It's the first promise that God is going to make things right, that he's going to restore what our sin has broken. He says to the serpent there, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent who twisted and deceived God's, deceived God's word to lead Adam and Eve into sin, God says he's destined for defeat. Humanity, yes, has been bruised, infected with a sinful nature, but Satan is the one who will ultimately be crushed, ultimately be defeated. And then Adam and Eve have tried to cover up their sin on their own. We saw that, but God sets a pattern in verse 21 of chapter 3 when he makes clothes for them from animal skins. We'll see this a little bit more in depth in the coming weeks as we continue through the story of God in the Old Testament, but this act communicates a couple of important points to us today. First, that sin does ultimately require and lead to death, just as God said that it does. But second, that God is the only one who can provide a suitable solution to our sin problem. He's the only one who can restore what's broken. We can't do it on our own. We don't deserve for God to do it for us. We deserve what sin brings, brokenness and ultimately death. But God gives grace for restoration, showing that he will provide a sacrifice that will cover the guilt of our sin. Nothing is quite the same after Genesis 3. We know that's not to say that everything is bad. Genesis 5 tells us that the people fulfilled God's command to be fruitful and multiply, showing us that the image of God in humanity was not removed completely, even though the effects of sin are visible everywhere we turn. 
What we also see, though, is that as humanity multiplied and spread, so did sin. We see sin increasing in the tragic story of Cain and Abel, where brother turns against brother. And by the time we come to the well-known story of Noah in Genesis chapter 6, sin is only continuing to spread and increase in the hearts of mankind. Let's take a look. Genesis 6 verse 5 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sin had done then what sin does today. Like a wildfire, the tiniest spark quickly becomes an all-consuming blaze. Sin spreads. That's the picture here. And God, who concludes chapter 1 by saying his creation was very good, now comes to this point in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord God said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. Some have the idea that the God of the Old Testament is an angry, vengeful God who takes some sadistic glee in smiting people, but God is described here as one who is heartbroken and filled with grief at the sin of humanity. Some would look at the story of Noah and see it primarily as a story of God's wrath, but the main thing we learn from Noah's life is that God gives saving grace to those who trust him. God gives saving grace to those who trust him. Continuing on in Genesis 6, verse 8, says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. We learn that God determined to destroy everything on the earth with a great flood. But Noah found favor. So God tells Noah, build an ark in which his family will be saved. Noah is described as righteous and blameless, as someone who walked with God. But the author of the book of Hebrews tells us that it's important we understand the order of verses 8 and 9 here, lest we think that the basis of Noah's salvation was his own self-righteousness. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, not because he'd earned it and not because he was perfect in every way where those around him had failed. It was because of his faith. He trusted the Lord. Right? Noah heard the warning of God of the coming flood and believed God. And because he believed God, he did what God commanded him to do. It was Noah's faith that made him an heir of righteousness, not his perfect record. That's the contrast we see here between Noah in Genesis 6 and 7 and Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. When God tells Noah what to do and how to do it and when to do it, Noah trusted God and did what God said. Noah's story shows us that God gives saving grace to those who trust him, that God is the one who makes the first move. It says that Noah found favor could translate that word also as grace. It's with grace that God looked upon Noah. It's by God's grace that Noah is called righteous and blameless in his generation. That Noah is walking with God while everyone else is scoffing 
at God. It's by grace that God looks upon the violence and corruption of the world and then speaks to Noah a word of salvation from the coming destruction. It's grace that God tells Noah to build an ark, exactly how to build it, and exactly who and what to take aboard with him. It's God's grace worked out in Noah's life through faith. We may look at the story and say, well, Noah's the one that built the ark, though. Noah's the one that did the work. Noah's the one that saved himself, it seems like. But look at Genesis 7, verse 16. It says, those that that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. Sin twists the word of God, but Noah trusted that the Lord was telling him the truth about the flood and the ark and how it needed to be built. Sin distorts the image of God, but by faith, Noah did as the Lord commanded him, reflecting the Lord's righteousness. Sin breaks our relationship, our fellowship with God, but in the midst of a wicked generation, Noah walked with the Lord. He trusted the Lord, obeyed the Lord, and the Lord shut him in. When the floodwaters rose and then the floodwaters subsided, through faith, Noah was saved. And in Noah's story, we see the pattern taking shape here in a way that continues to this day. God gives saving grace to those who trust in him. Compared to the stories of Adam and Eve and Noah, so we continue on in the book of Genesis, the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 gets far less attention. But these nine verses that begin Genesis chapter 11 do quite a bit of important work in the unbroken story of the Bible as they show us that God gives common grace to all people. God gives saving grace to those who trust him, but God gives common grace to all people. Take a look at what that means here, beginning in Genesis 11, verse 1. It says there, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said... Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Remember, God had told humanity to take dominion over creation, to work, and then to multiply, and to fill the whole earth. But remember what sin does. Sin twists the word of God, distorts the image of God, and breaks our fellowship with God. And so instead of continuing to spread out across the earth, they decided, we're just going to stay here. We like it here. We're going to stay in this place. And we're going to build a tower that will reach to the heavens so that we will make a name for ourselves. They decide they will, what they will build. They decide how they will build it. They decide they'll be the ones who get the glory and the fame. They decide we won't be dispersed over the whole face of the earth, even though God said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Once again, we see by chapter 11, sin is running rampant. And once again, we see God step in with grace. Let's continue in verse 5 there, chapter 11. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. 
Come, let us go down and there confuse their languages so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is a different kind of grace than we saw in the life of Noah. It isn't grace in the sense that we usually think of it and that we sing of it as we sing songs like Amazing Grace. It's not the saving grace that rescues us from sin for all eternity. This is common grace that God gives to all people, regardless of their belief or unbelief in Him. The text says God knows that this is only the beginning of what these people will be able to do. They're already rebelling against Him. They're united in their purpose, which is counter to God's purpose. And God says nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. In other words, God sees here, if He doesn't step in now, this group of people is just going to keep moving farther and farther from His good design. They're going to continue pursuing their own glory instead of His. And as the one who created them with a purpose, He knows where their sinful rebellion will lead. And He says nothing will be impossible for them. That's not an inspirational message. It's a dire prediction from the one who sees all things and knows all things that if they're left alone in their sin completely, they will persist in their unified rebellion against God until they've once again brought the full weight of destruction down on themselves. And so God graciously steps in, confusing their language frustrating their plans. He moves to scatter them, to separate them, so that by dividing their united front, the spread of sin might be slowed. When we say that God gives common grace to all people, that doesn't mean that all people are saved for all of eternity. We already said God gives saving grace to those who trust Him, but what we see here again is God is not eagerly waiting for us to mess up so that He can just strike us down. God sees humanity again here, veering toward a cliff, and he sets up this guardrail. There's still lots of ways, lots of places that humanity can go away from God's design, but he sets up this guardrail so that we can't drive off the cliff. We can't bring about the full judgment of sin until it is time. And so, yes, we look around today and we ask, what in the world is wrong with people? But by God's grace, things are not as bad as they could be because even in the lives of those who do not acknowledge him or trust him, God moves and works to restrain evil and to preserve life. Even in the lives of leaders and nations who do not acknowledge him or trust him, God moves and works to restrain evil and to preserve life. God's common grace points us to his mercy and to his patience. Sin leads to death and destruction and brokenness, just as God said in Genesis 2 and 3, but by intervening in human history, and setting up certain guardrails, evil's destructive spread is slowed. What the first 11 chapters of Genesis show us is that sin does spread like a wildfire, both within our own hearts and from one heart to another. We talk about peer pressure as something that kids or students struggle with, but it's part of our sinful nature all through our lives that we want the approval of others. And apart from Jesus, we want the approval of others more than we want God's approval. That is how sin spreads. But sometimes, sometimes, right, by God's common grace, the teenager who's invited to a party says no, not because 
they trust the Lord or know the Lord, but because by his common grace, they see the destructive power of what is going to happen at that party, the danger of what will happen and be celebrated there. And that is God's common grace. Or sometimes there's an adult who sees an opportunity in business to massively increase their bottom line by cheating others, but they turn away from that opportunity from dishonest gain, not because they trust the Lord and know him, but because by God's common grace, they know that it's wrong and that they will be found out. The land in which we live continues to produce food, even with much harder work because of God's common grace. Artists who do not trust the Lord create stunningly beautiful work because of God's common grace. Doctors who don't trust the Lord discover life-changing medical advancements. We could go on and on this morning, but God gives common grace to all people because he's patient and merciful and kind, because he is a good God. And he does it so that in the fullness of time, more people will have more opportunities to come to know his saving grace through faith. Sin leads to brokenness, twisting the word of God, distorting the image of God, and breaking our fellowship with God and others. But God gives grace for restoration, saving grace to those who trust him, common grace to all people. These are the realities and the patterns that we see God setting early on in Genesis 3 through 11. But they aren't patterns that God set then and then left behind. They're patterns that God set then that point us forward in the unbroken story of what God continues to do in our world today, what he continues to do in his church today. We experience the fullness of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I don't mean that in the kind of cursory Sunday school answer sort of way where the answer is always Jesus. I mean it in the, our very souls, our very lives depend on us believing this good news sort of way. We experience the fullness of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In Genesis 3.15, God promised the offspring of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. And in the fullness of time, the Son of God took on human flesh and dwelt among us. Each of us have rejected God and his plan in our sin. But Jesus trusted and obeyed God the Father all the way to the point of death on the cross, where he died the death that our sin deserves. And on the third day, he was raised in victory over sin and the serpent. God promised victory in Genesis 3.15. Romans 16.20 tells us that victory is ours and that God's plan is still on track. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Jesus is the victory God promised all the way back in Genesis 3. Remember, how God there made a covering for sin from the skins of animals for Adam and Eve as they left the garden. Now by the shedding of his blood, Jesus is the one who covers our sin now and forever. Sin leads to brokenness, but God gives grace for restoration. God gives us Jesus for restoration. And he still gives saving grace to those who trust him. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tell us that it's in Jesus that we experience the fullness of of God's saving grace. It says there in verse 8 of Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. By grace through faith. 
not saved by our good works, by our record of church attendance or whatever we want to point to. The next verse in Ephesians 2 tells us, though, that we are saved for good works. God's grace restores us from dead in our sin to alive together with Christ. It is all His grace, all His gift that we receive by faith. God still gives saving grace to those who trust Him. This morning, maybe you would say you feel like your situation is different, right? Your sin is too great for God to forgive through Jesus. But Romans 5.20 tells us where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Don't believe for a second your sin is greater than God's grace. God has grace to supply every need we have. And now, let's be careful, though, as we say that, not to get the word of God twisted. Don't hear that God saves by grace, that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, and take that as permission to live however we want or to sin whenever we want, because it doesn't really matter as long as I have Jesus, he's going to forgive me anyways. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible makes it very clear that the one who trusts God obeys God. Romans 6, chapter, Romans chapter 6, verse 1 says this, what shall we say then? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If his grace is bigger than my sin, then I'll just keep on sinning and doing whatever I want. God says, absolutely not, because saving grace comes through faith. And you can't trust that God is good and that his way is best and then just keep running full speed ahead away from him. There will be stumbles and probably even seasons of sin in the life of a believer in this fallen world, but by the power of God's grace, the one who trusts God will turn away from sin and turn back to him throughout their life. God gives saving grace to those who trust him, common grace to all people. We experience the fullness of God's grace through faith in Jesus. But what we know is this, that not everyone believes in what Jesus has done to save us from our sin. The common grace, God's common grace shows us the patience of our God. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. When we ask what in the world is wrong with people, sometimes the next question is, why hasn't Jesus already come back and put an end to all this wickedness and sin and evil that we see in the world. It's not because God's asleep at the will. It's because God is patient. And every day that Jesus does not return is another day, another opportunity for us to proclaim the good news that Jesus saves to all nations. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. And so God gives common grace to all people so that more people will hear, more people will experience the fullness of his grace through faith in Jesus. Just take the people of Babel as an example. Remember, God confused their language and scattered them, dispersed them throughout the world because he knew that left together, they would have sinned so efficiently and been so evil that his anger would have been kindled against them just as it was in the days of Noah. And so God stepped in there. But that wasn't even there, just about a single moment in history. It was about God's unbroken 
plan. God said in Genesis 11, verse 7, come, let us go down, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. This again, let us go down, is Trinitarian language. God the Father, Son, and Spirit. God moved then to confuse their speech and to scatter them. But we know as we continue in the story of God through the Bible into the New Testament that in the fullness of time, God would come down again. Jesus came, and after he died on the cross to cover our sins, after he was raised from dead in victory on the third day, victory over the serpent and over our sin, he ascended into heaven. And when Jesus ascended, then the Spirit of God came down. We read of that in Acts chapter 2. Look at what happens there. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Genesis 11 God confused their languages and scattered the nations. So that in Acts 2, those who had experienced his common grace might also experience the fullness of his saving grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The Spirit moves powerfully here so that everyone present hears the message of salvation in their own language. God is still at work today through the power of the Spirit in the lives of those who trust him, drawing those whom sin has scattered from him back together into one people. Not so that we can make a name for ourselves, but so that we can live for his name and for his glory, so that we can be a part of the scene that we see in Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God. Sin still leads to brokenness. Sin is still spreading. But God is still giving grace today. So as we close this morning, I'll just ask you a few questions. We began with what in the world is wrong with people. We've seen that it's sin. And so is there sin in your life today that's leading to brokenness for you and for others? Today, you need to turn from that and look to Jesus and trust in him. 
that may be for the first time, right? Have you ever placed your faith in Jesus to save you? If you haven't, then today can be the day that you experience his grace and restoration. And if you have experienced the fullness of God's grace through faith in Jesus, then are you reflecting that grace to those around you? We saw last week being created in God's image means we reflect his character. People look at us and see a people who are kind and patient and merciful and gracious. If you've experienced the fullness of God's grace through faith in Jesus, then also with whom are you sharing that faith? Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If they can't call on him of whom they've never heard, who is hearing Jesus' name from you?